Hello, you're listening to a podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions, where we study the past to understand our feelings in the present. I'm Thomas Dixon, and this is The Sound of Anger. Episode 2. How does it feel? When I was moving from Berlin, all my stuff, I hired a removal firm and they didn't turn up. And it got to two o'clock in the morning and I realised they weren't turning up ever. And if everything is not removed from that place, we don't get the deposit back. I was under so much stress and my partner was so ill he couldn't do anything. I mean, he was out for the count. You know what it's like when you have to move. The stress was just huge and then the stress of... And I phoned them up and I literally bellowed down the phone. I didn't recognise the sound that came out of my mouth. (laughs) I didn't recognise it. I was just... But I had the good sense not to do it in the house because I thought I'd upset Frederick. So I went onto the street, in the middle of the street. And I was literally kind of like... it. Just all my anger was going into this phone and like everybody stopped and they were like all these drunk people and because Berlin on two o'clock in the morning and I just shrieked but it it was um it it was really thrilling and exhilarating and it was amazing yeah thrilling exhilarating the feeling of losing it that story is being told by Laurie Luxemburg. She's a singer with an extraordinary voice. We wanted to talk to her to see if she could give us an insight into making the sound of anger and performing it, because that's what this episode is about, what anger sounds, feels and looks like. It's about approaching anger from the outside. We'll hear from Laurie a bit later on about performing anger as an opera singer, but let's get back to that late-night street in Berlin. The removal firm still hasn't turned up and Laurie is starting to feel... Well, let's hear from her. I could feel that slightly out-of-body thing you get. I could feel it coming on. And it's a bit like vomiting or something. I didn't recognise it as my sound. I thought, who's that? (laughs) This sound came out. I thought, wow, that's really cool sound (laughs) afterwards. The sound is also really, really loud. If this weren't a podcast, I'd suggest that you step away from your speakers. But it is, so to save your delicate ears, we'll dial down the levels a bit for you. This was like a real animal sound. This was kind of like a... It was like that sort of thing. And it was really diffuse and it was really kind of... Yeah, it was a... Whoa. I mean, many of us might think of anger as loud and shouty, but that is really a whole different level. Although for some people, it seems it is exhilarating and cathartic to let out such a howl of anger. Not everyone finds it that way. And not everyone expresses rage like that either. Some people think of the sound of anger as something totally different. Perhaps a bit more like this. Now, bear with me. I'll explain the sound effect in a minute. We heard in the last episode about William James and his 19th century theory that the bodily expressions of emotions are not a mere side effect of something in the mind, but are the real stuff of emotions themselves, 
We feel afraid because our body is trembling. We feel angry because we clench our fists and scream down the phone at a removals company. Now, we may not want to go as far as William James, but most of us, when we try to think about what we mean by words like anger or rage, do seem to think of them as something embodied, visceral, visible, and often audible too. And it's that palpable bodily sensation that people keep coming back to when we ask them what anger feels like. My heartbeat is elevated. There's a breathlessness to it. I get quite hot. And if I'm really angry, I get even more rosy-cheeked. I develop a kind of tunnel vision. I can also get very agitated. I probably rant a little bit. It produces a kind of restlessness. I pace around. It just feels like very expressive and sharp. I, I tell you what, it, it feels loud. Indeed, loud. For me, anger is linked to sound in two ways. One of the things that makes me most annoyed is noise. Unwanted noise, like the noise of people eating crisps, or the noise that drowns out the podcast I'm trying to listen to when I'm travelling on the central line. And even worse is unwanted noise caused by me, by my own stupidity, like a door slamming loudly because I've left all the windows open or a saucepan clattering to the kitchen floor when I've dropped it in my clumsiness. Idiot! So, anger can be brought on by sounds, but then also expressed in other sounds. It sometimes feels to me like my anger is a kind of horrible emotional amplifier. An annoying loud signal comes in, and then something even louder, and for my family, even more annoying, gets bellowed out of my lungs. The political journalist Joanne Nadler spoke to us over a cup of tea about her own anger. Joanne is someone who feels the benefit of making her inner frustrations audible. So how does she feel when she's just starting to get angry? Oh, it's very uncomfortable, I would say, yeah. Because I think the thing about anger, for the most part, is that it's a quite an internalised emotion. It's quite difficult, if you consider yourself to be a civilised person, to let it out. So it becomes, you know, it becomes a sort of physically uncomfortable sensation. You feel it physically. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I would say I do. And do you let it out sometimes? Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean I swear. Okay. A lot. Okay. Con- contrary <laughs> to what people might expect yeah, of the, you know. Do you do that in private? I mean that'd be too um, intrusive for these questions. <laughs> Because I quite like a kind of private expletive, mm. but I don't do it very much in public. Yeah, I know. I really admire that. Um, <laughs> I, I try not to do it in public, but I have to say, um, for me, Without it's... Without 100% success. It, yeah, quite. It's, uh, I mean, I don't do it in public public, but it has been done in front of my child, for instance. Mm. Um, and, you know, often in front of my elderly mother, which is an interesting one. Mm. And do you feel better when you've mm. had a bit of a swear. Oh, definitely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> definitely, yeah. And so, you, okay, so for you, that sounds like it's a relatively healthy experience. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, yeah. you look at your life as a whole, being able to swear when you're frustrated, then let things out, that's basically healthy. Yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. We'll come back to the vexed question of whether all this is healthy or not in the next episode. But does anger always have to make itself heard through shouting or swearing? Or can it be expressed audibly in other, less loud, more surprising ways. 
for example, through the slow build-up of the sound of bells. I said we'd come back to this. This was a technique used in a performance piece about anger called With Force and Noise that I saw back in 2015 when we first started thinking about the sounds of anger for this project. The artist and writer Hannah Sullivan used the sounds of bells on an ingenious costume she wore to communicate the idea of a tinkling, simmering, almost harmonious build-up of anger. Something a little different from roaring rage or expletive explosions. To learn more about tuneful ways to perform angry emotions, let's get back to mezzo-soprano and voice artist Laurie Lixenberg, whose story about that 2am outburst on the streets of Berlin opened this episode. We asked her if there are good examples of anger to be found in the classical repertoire. I'm really interested at the moment in these Baroque Furioso arias, uh, or is it Furioso arias? It's an aria normally in an opera where a character reaches a point where they're expressing some kind of rage about something. And they're found also in Mozart. In fact, I suppose a classic one that everyone would know is the Queen of the Night. You know, that she's furious. I mean, she's just absolutely incandescent with with vengeance and rage. So, let's listen to an example of one of these amazing furioso arias. Here it comes. This is great. What? What? Why can't we have it? Oh, you are kidding. I, I thought you'd sorted this out. That is so unbelievably annoying. You said we could have that music. (sighs) Right. Okay. Apparently, for copyright reasons, we're not going to play you that bit of Mozart. You'll just have to imagine for yourself what an incandescent soprano might sound like when she's singing about the vengeance of hell and death and despair. What we can listen to now is Laurie Luxemburg's explanation of how these pieces of music work. What these arias have in common is that they they tend to be minor keys for a start, but with a bright sound, which is an oxymoron in Occidental music. And then they tend to be very fast, very fast running passages. And then, of course, the Dark Capo, have, you get these fantastic ornaments on top of them. And for Laurie, there's one singer of these arias who stands out, Cecilia Bartoli. I think what she does, for a start, the tempi that she achieves are like no one else's. You know, you can't, you kind of think, well, it can't get any faster or more ornate. And yet she, yes, she makes it faster and more ornate. And you can only do that if you have some kind of supernatural thing inside you, which anger momentarily gives you, I think. You listen to some recordings and they're beautiful and elegant and exquisite. And then you listen to her and it's like, holy shit, she's really cross. <laughs> you sort of think, wow, that's... So she so she, she nails the tempi, but also with a super focus to the sound. Her vocal cords are really contacting. And I think that's another thing that you get with anger is that there's, a, there's an energy to the attack of, of a sound. And also she does something quite interesting is that she allows a little bit of a little bit of breath in the, because there's always a, like a middle passage which is slightly slower and she allows a little bit of breath in on, on words like furie. In these slower passages, if they were to be perfectly airless, 
uh, as in no air in the sound, it suggests a kind of a control. But if you say audio with that kind of... I tell you what it is. It's something about... It takes so much skill and technique to do that. But it always feels like it's on the edge of falling off. And that's what it does. So she just gives us a little feeling like I could fall off here, which is when anger happens, you could explode. That's such an amazing description of a furioso performance. Speed, control, breath, and just a hint of a coming explosion. It makes me think of how in normal life too, even for those of us who are not virtuosos, we perform our emotions. And I think there's a back and forth between the way we perform our own feelings and the performances that we see on stage and screen. Dr. Imka Rajamani is a historian of emotions and the cinema. She's made a particular study of angry young man films in India since the 1970s. She spoke to us about the contradictions that she experiences between her own feelings and the way that anger is portrayed in those movies. How does it feel like? It's, it's difficult to say because I have all these narratives of how anger should feel like from the Indian context, but it doesn't feel like that. I'm not getting a hot head. I'm not feeling my eyes getting red. Um, it's just very intensive, like moving. It just feels like very expressive and sharp. Yeah. Do you feel your body doing things? Do you feel your heart pumping, your muscles tensing, your face going red, anything like that you're supposed to? No, but I find myself speaking very loud. <laughs> so it's the, sa- the sound of anger for you is shouting. There's something about the voice trying to get through. <laughs> Where arguments fail, it's the sound of the voice. Back to shouting again, the sound of anger. That seems to be a recurring theme. It's not just the voice, though. The whole body is involved in angry feelings. In the first episode, we met Professor Sarah Garfinkel, a neuroscientist who studies anger in her lab, but who doesn't experience it in her own life. Apart from maybe just that one time. Someone made a mistake in the lab and all the data is wrong. And I felt this weird sensation. And I'm like, is this anger? (laughs) And I didn't know how to deal with it. So what did that feel like? It was like a bodily arousal thing. Like I was aware that my body was a bit hotter and I sort of, had a sort of uh, feeling where I was sort of clasping my hands out now and I was like, Yee! but I didn't really know, was that frustration? Was I don't know. People talk about anger being an approach emotion and I had to sort of desire to sort of go forward, <laughs> but I didn't get it. And then I sort of calmed down. Feeling hot, clasping hands, wanting to go forwards. Was that anger? We're all different. And our bodies are different. Joanne Nadler, who spoke about the benefits of swearing, also has quite a distinctive bodily experience that goes along with that. For me, and this is quite a personal thing to admit, I find I get quite, sometimes get quite tearful when I'm angry. It, it is that sense of a sort of wanting to let something out, which you perhaps feel you can't let out in public. So then it becomes a sort of introspective... A bit, there's a breathlessness to it, if I'm actually going to think about the physicality of it. You know, you feel kind of constrained and 
a little bit like I am at the moment, actually, in trying to concentrate. But it's a sort of... Um, almost, I'm not meaning the word literally, but there's a sort of constipated element to it, a sort of, you know, frustration. Constipated. Constrained. There are so many different metaphors that we might use to describe the angry body. I love the phrase that the psychologist Jim Russell used in our first episode. There's just an uncountable number of different events that we label as anger. And there's just an uncountable number of different ways that people's bodies can change and feel during angry episodes. Anger can feel like something trapped in our bodies. It can leak out in silent tears or burst out in a noisy eruption. It can make us agitated or aggressive. You might feel hot or ready to move. And in trying to describe those bodily experiences, feelings at the edge of what we can put into words, we draw on the images and metaphors that our culture provides. That's all we have. In the modern post-Freudian, post-Darwinian West, those images are often either about the containment and expulsion of emotional energy or about animal instincts, aggression. In other cultures, the imagery may be very different, and the ideas about expression can be different too, to the extent that in some cultures, any display of anger is, well, frowned upon. And that brings me on to one of my favourite books about anger. Northwest of Hudson Bay, along the northern shore of the American continent and southward to the tree line hundreds of miles away, lies an immense open tundra. In 1963, the anthropologist Jean Briggs went to live in a remote area of the Arctic to study a small, nomadic Inuit community known as the Utku. The feel of the tundra is that of a vast mountaintop. The same exhilarating, wind-clean space, low-scudding clouds, and the peculiar silence, almost audible in its intensity, that exists only where there is no tall growth for the breeze to ruffle. In her book about the experience, called Never in Anger, which has been continuously in print since 1970, Briggs vividly evokes the physical environment she encountered. It is a severe country, but one of more like beauty and dramatic change. In the summer months, Briggs found the tundra was covered with colorful lichens and alpine flowers a few inches high, but winter came rapidly. Snow falls thinly during the nights of September and October, driving in ribbons across the black ice surfaces of the lakes and rivers to freeze there, sculptured into graceful tongues by the wind. After the sea is frozen, the cloud blanket lifts and the black and white landscape of autumn becomes suffused with the colors of the sinking sun. Then, too, the moon reappears. In the strong light of summer, it had been a shadow, unnoticed. But now, radiant even at noonday, it seems the one living thing in a world whose silence is broken only by the rustle of the ground wind on the frozen snow and the thunder crack of ice. Animal life has withdrawn into the whiteness. Only the tracks of invisible ptarmigan, fox, and rabbit pattern the snow. And an occasional crow, startling in its blackness, flaps heavily above the ground in search of food. 
Perhaps Briggs saw herself as that heavily flapping crow, out of place in the icy silence. She found the emotional landscape as cold, severe and inhospitable as the Arctic snow. Although the Utku people allowed their children to scream, cry and have quite extreme outbursts of temper, she found the adults were expected to be the opposite, unexpressive and controlled. Hence the title of her book, Never in Anger. By the standards of the Utku, Jean Briggs was emotionally wild and uncontrolled, like all Kapluna or white people. This clash of emotional cultures came to a head when Briggs got into a confrontation with a visiting group of Kapluna fishermen who wanted to borrow a canoe. They'd already damaged the only other boat and Briggs wanted to stand up for the Utku and for their leader Inutiak. She believed the visiting fishermen were wrong to ask to borrow the only remaining boat. I exploded. Unsmilingly and in a cold voice, I told the Kapluna leader a variety of things that I thought he should know that if he borrowed the second canoe, we would be without a fishing boat, that if this boat was also damaged, we would be in a very difficult position since a previous guide had forgotten to bring on his return trip the repair materials that Inudiak had traded for, and that we would be unable to buy materials ourselves until the strait froze in November. At this point, Briggs turned to Inutiak to check that he agreed, that she should say no to the fisherman's request to borrow the canoe. I hoped my voice was calm when I replied to Inudiak, as you like. But I was filled with fury at Kapluna and Inudiak alike, as well as myself for having undertaken the feudal role of mediator. And my tone was icy when I said to the guide, he says you can have it. Turning abruptly, I strode back to my tent, went to bed, and wept in silence. After months of being subtly ostracised and shunned by the Utku for her unacceptable emotional outburst, Briggs was eventually accepted back into their fold on something like friendly terms. Her narrative, with its wonderful conjuring up of icy, featureless landscapes and cold, expressionless people, shows how hard it can be for us to read and understand each other's emotions, especially when we find ourselves in a culture where the rules of expression are different, but even within our own culture too. And again, it seems hard to believe in the face of this evidence that anger is a word for something universal, a feeling that's the same for everyone or that's expressed the same way all around the world and in all historical periods. Instead, each culture makes its own imagery and its own visual language alongside its ideas about feelings and emotions. We heard in the first episode of The Sound of Anger that in the West there's a long history of understanding rage and wrath as the desire for revenge, a desire which makes itself visible mainly in acts of violence. This came up in a conversation I had with cultural historian Dr Fern Riddell, and you'll hear more from her in the next episode when we discuss suffragettes, politics and anger. Fern and I were discussing outward versus inward kinds of anger, and the fact that you might be able to see anger very visibly, for example, if two men are drunk and get into a fight with each other. But in other cases, you can't see it at all. Let's agree that there are forms of anger which have no outward consequences. I'm totally fine with that, the idea that someone is angry, but they don't show it at all. Right? They don't punch anyone, they don't look like they're going to punch anyone, they don't throw a plate at the wall. What I'm trying to get at is what does their feeling, what structure or nature does that feeling have to have for it to qualify as anger rather than sadness or pain? 
you know, or something. And what I was suggesting, trying to suggest was, it was the intention or the mental movement towards aggression, even if that was entirely internal, mm -hmm. towards getting your own back, aggression, violence, even if that was a, at a fantasy or imaginary level. I don't... Because oh, otherwise aware. isn't it something else? Isn't it pain or sadness? Yeah, it, it, yeah, I'm very aware that I set this up by sort of saying two lads squaring off against each other. And I think perhaps that's an external understanding of anger rather than an internal one. I mean, I think that... Sorry to cut across you. I think that scenario, and certainly historically, and certainly in the history of art, that scenario of drunk men squaring up to each other is absolutely canonical um, picture of something. Rage, wrath, ire, anger. Hieronymus Bosch has a, a thing called the Seven Deadly Sins. It's a kind of it's a tabletop mm. painting of the Seven Deadly Sins. And ira, wrath, is two drunk men outside a pub. 600 years ago yeah. that's what it is breaking furniture over each other's heads yeah. so that is something absolutely fundamental and, I, and that is an image that I immediately associate with anger but so the question is in those cases where we're saying there's somebody who is we believe is angry but they're not in that scenario how do we know that they're angry how do they know that they're angry how do they know that their painful feeling counts as anger rather than something else to, to kind of draw on what you're talking about about art and artistic expression for me one of the most amazing images of anger, of female anger, is incredible painting by Artemisia Gentileschi, which is called Judith and Holophanes. And this, for me, is a pure expression of female rage because Artemisia was raped and she paints her rapist into this portrait and she cuts his head off and she paints herself cutting his head off. And whilst it is a, a biblical story, it's this incredible way of of expressing and owning your anger when you have nowhere else to go with it and i i would defy anyone to say that that is less anger than two drunk lads squaring off in a pub and i i really think we we need to understand anger is not just a violent because people can be violent with their words we can be violent with their words people can be violent with abuse online you, you know our, our ways of doing violence to each other through anger has never been a purely physical thing. I totally agree. Anger has never been a purely physical thing. That's what's so interesting about anger and rage and wrath. When we try to describe what they sound like, or feel like, or look like, we often use physical descriptions, physical images. They feel hot or icy, loud or silent, agitated and explosive, or constipated and contained. We expect rage to become tangible somehow, but there's no universal language of expression. Anger might come out in a pub brawl, or in a fantasy of revenge expressed in an oil painting, or in an ambiguous icy stare, or an exhilarating animalistic howl. Or all that rage and fury might remain inside, silent and invisible. Listening to all the different versions of what anger is, how it sounds and feels and looks, has left me with a couple of thoughts. The first is about how the way we describe our feelings changes the way we actually feel. The reason so many people experience anger, for instance, as an energy that needs to be channeled, is perhaps not because there is a thing in nature called anger, which is an energy that needs to be channeled, but simply that our culture tells us that there is, and we repeat to each other that there is. 
Different cultures will provide different metaphors and languages, and those shape and produce our feelings. The second thought, and here I'm getting back to that question of whether there's anything that holds together all this emotional difference, is that maybe it's violence or the threat of violence that connects this all up. The loudness, the shouting, the clenched fists, the paintings of brawls and decapitations. And perhaps that's why I'm so uncomfortable with what I see as the celebration of anger in the political sphere. I always see and hear in that celebration a thinly veiled threat of violence. Am I right to fear that? Should we be worried about the politics of anger, or should we embrace its potential to bring about change? Those are the questions that we'll get to grips with in the next episode of The Sound of Anger. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Queen Mary Centre for the History of the Emotions. It was presented by me, Thomas Dixon, as part of the Living with Feeling project, generously supported by the Wellcome Trust. It was produced by Natalie Steed. To hear the rest of the Sound of Anger series, and to listen to our other podcasts, search for Queen Mary History of Emotions on SoundCloud or iTunes, and discover more about our work at emotionslab.org.